You're listening to the Unlocking Business Growth Podcast with Nola Heal. Nola has over 30 years of experience in financial and operations management for companies around the world. As a part-time CFO, she's dedicated to working with businesses of all sizes to create sustainable growth and amplify strategy. Today, I'm joined by David Garofalo, who serves as Chief Executive Officer, President and Chairman of the Board of Directors of the Gold Royalty Corp. David has worked in various leadership capabilities in the natural resources sector over the last 30 years. He served as President and Chief Executive Officer of Gold Corp Inc. until its sale to Newmont Corporation in April of 2019. Prior to joining Gold Corp, he served as President, Chief Executive Officer and Director of Hud Bay Minerals Inc. from 2010 to 2015, where he presided over that company's emergence as a leading metals producer. Previous to this, he held various senior executive positions with mining companies, including Senior Vice President Finance and Chief Financial Officer of Agnico Eagle Limited from 1998 to 2010, and as treasurer and other various finance roles within Inmet Mining Corporation from 1990 to 1998. He was named Mining Person of the Year by the Northern Miner in 2012 and Canada's CFO of the Year by Financial Executives International Canada in 2009. A graduate of the University of Toronto, BCom, he's a chartered accountant and a certified director of the Institute of Corporate Directors. He also serves on the Board of Directors of the Vancouver Board of Trade and the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us today. You have a wealth of experience in the mining industry, starting out as a chartered accountant and CFO. In fact, even winning the CFO of the Year Award from FEI Canada while I was the president of the Calgary chapter, which is an amazingly small world. And then you moved into CEO and chairman positions through some very large growth and transactions. What got you into the natural resources industry in the first place? And what are you doing now? You know what? It it fell into it. I was a really junior accountant working at Deloitte's and uh, it was almost the first phone call I got after I received my CA and uh, wasn't really interested in staying in the audit practice. I thought, well, I try this mining thing for a couple of years and I'm sure I'll move on to something else. But, you know, one year led to two years, led to 10 and then 20 and 30 years. And it's been an incredible journey um, in the mining business and and, um, through four very, very strong organizations uh, over the 30 years. Um, all on the operating side. I've uh, been involved in the development of, of uh, nearly 15 mines over my career um, and responsible for the operation of countless others. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. And I learned the business from the ground up because I started at a relatively junior position, actually very, very junior, not relatively junior. It was just absolutely junior position, at the consolidations accountant, if you will. Awesome. Um, and so now I've transitioned into the royalty business, a uh, gold royalty business, and uh, with a company that we IPO'd in March called Gold Royalty Corp on the New York Stock Exchange. And we already have a portfolio of 18 royalties on a variety of development stage gold assets throughout the Americas. And we have a treasury of about $90 million US. And we're out there uh, looking to acquire more royalties and grow our business one royalty at a time, and also look for opportunities to consolidate 
the the broad proliferation of royalty players we've seen come into the space over the last couple of years. And and the reason I'm positioned at that end of the spectrum at this stage of my career is because there's been a significant development and exploration deficit that's manifested itself in the gold business over the last half a dozen years as the industry's focused on harvesting its existing assets and seeing the reserves decline by about 40%. So they haven't really been replacing it through exploration development efforts. And now I think there's going to be a catch-up trade um, in that. I, I think there's going to be a, a wall of capital that's going to come into exploration and development. And royalty companies have traditionally been a very important part of the ecosystem when it comes to exploration development. They provide that upfront capital much more cost-effectively than the juniors and the emerging producers can raise on their own and take a royalty back in return. And, uh, and really, the way I look at the royalty business um, is, you know, it's almost like buying an ETF, but with expiration upside. And so you're not exposed to the underlying operating and capital cost uh, inflation risk, because really all you're exposed to is revenue, uh, royalty, excuse me, on the revenue on the top line. Um, and so that's that's the appeal to investors of buying the royalty. It's a low risk proposition with optimal leverage to both the gold price and expiration upside in the underlying assets. That's really awesome. So what is the business model for Gold Royalty Corp then? So our, our job is to deploy the capital that our shareholders have entrusted us with. As I said, we raised $90 million US in our IPO, which was actually upsized several times. We were intending to raise $30 million, but the response was very, very robust. And we raised quite a bit more capital, and our objective is to deploy that capital, expecting to get double-digit rates of return on the capital we deploy in exploration development assets. And indeed, we may end up buying royalties that already exist on existing operating assets. Sometimes those are non-core to existing gold operating companies or looking to crystallize some value, uh, and we can pick up royalties that way. But I think an, another way for us to leapfrog our competitors is actually to uh, merge with a number of them and create scale quickly. And scale affords you the opportunity to drive down your cost of capital. Uh, the, the bigger you are, the bigger, better multiple, I should say, you'll get in the marketplace. And that drives down your cost of capital and enhances that rate of return proposition that I was talking about. Makes sense. So there's obviously an awesome demand if you upsized your IPO several times. So uh, that's, that's obviously yeah. a lot of capital out there wanting to, to be invested. So what is the what are the fundamentals of investing in base and precious metal industries from your perspective? Well, yeah, they're very robust right now and, and not, not that different than what we saw 10 years ago coming out of the credit crisis when we were in the midst of the Chinese super cycle. Base metals were quite robust. Uh, gold was doing very well because of the massive amounts of quantitative easing that was introduced into the financial system uh, to, to bring it out of the crisis that it was experiencing at the time. Um, and if anything, we've seen that amplified now. Um, we've seen significant amounts of quantitative easing, interest rates, both on an absolute um, or nominal and real basis at negative levels. So it's a very stimulative environment, undermining fiat currency. So gold is doing well in the face of that. So are cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies are capturing some of that uh, risk trade, if you will. Um, I, I think you know we have an opportunity to capture back some of that in the gold business because we've been at it a lot longer in terms of providing a store of value. Uh, but what we're seeing is now harmonized increases in metal prices. And what's driving base metal prices, for example, like copper, is the uh, the drive to decarbonize our economies, um, which is very, very copper intensive. If you think about the electrification of vehicles, which is a, a big drive globally, um, 
you know, a typical electric vehicle uses three times the amount of copper uh, than a traditional internal combustion engine would. And so that requires a lot of copper. The, the urbanization, continued urbanization of the developing world in China, India, and Africa, for that matter, is hugely copper intensive as well. So we see copper demand being robust for the foreseeable future. Uh, but like in the gold business, there really hasn't been an investment in new capacity on the copper side, which is why you're seeing the price response you're seeing today in copper. Um, and I think you're going to, again, see a significant amount of capital going both into gold and base metal development as a result of that. And what that means is I think we're going to see a reemergence of cost inflation um, that we saw 10 years ago in the mining business generally when both copper and gold companies were um, putting uh, a lot of projects into development. Uh, there was a competition for scarce human resources, equipment. The reality is a copper mine and a gold mine use the same equipment, the same people, the same expertise. And when you have uh, capacity constraints as you currently have, uh, you're going to see cost inflation. That's inevitable. Um, and uh, I think the underinvestment, uh, you know, the pendulum swung too far to, to the underinvestment end of the spectrum. And now it's going to have to swing too far to the overinvestment end of the spectrum to catch up for that development deficit that I talked about a little right. earlier on. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's going to overcompensate in the, in the shorter term. So who are the major investors in Gold Royalty Corp? Do you have any really large ones as a result of the IPO? Well, we actually uh, have a, a um, parent shareholder at 48%. We were spun out of a company awesome. called Gold Mining, okay. which has a, de- a dozen development stage gold assets across the Americas, which collectively have 26 million ounces of gold resource and over 31 million ounces of gold equivalent when you include uh, the copper byproducts uh, that are in some of their assets. Um, so that's a significant mineral endowment. We have royalties in all of those. And we have 18 royalties in all. And in the spin out, um, we saw gold mining go from 100% shoulder when we were private to 48% post the IPO. And then 60% of uh, the distribution on the IPO went to institutional investors, many of them generalists, awesome. uh, which is a, a good omen for the gold business generally, because I don't think there's been a lot of generalist participation. And 40% went to retail investors, uh, almost predominantly um, in the U.S., and so we've gone to non-traditional sources of capital. And as a result, we had an order book of over $140 million of demand. And as I said, we upsized from 30 to $90 million ultimately uh, when we closed our IPO. Very nice. And that, that's, that's a pretty good spread on the investment side because you have an adequate float because, let's face it, it's the retail investors that drive the crazy crazy prices or, or sometimes sensible prices, but um, it's the retail investors that create the volatility. But yeah. you need a large institutional portion to create the long-term investment and the, the stability. So gold was always a reserve currency. Um, what is its role nowadays for, for, for the uh, governments and, and um, uh, central banks around the world? It still very much is. I mean, uh, uh, central banks have been net buyers of gold for the last 10 years or so, really post the credit crisis, because they recognize, one, that they can't get yield in, in sovereign debt. You know, in the past, mm-hmm. you know, back in the late 1990s, when gold was $250 an ounce, uh, that was the trade. You know, central banks were diversifying into treasuries um, when they were yielding 7 or 8%. Didn't make sense to hold on to the barbarous relic of gold when it was yielding zero. 
But of course, now uh, with sovereign debt effectively at negative real rates with inflation rearing its head again, it, you know, it erodes capital to be stuck in treasuries or sovereign debt generally. And so gold has become a diversification tool for central banks as they look to um, expand um, or diversify their reserves. And, and they've done that, particularly in the developing world, you know, when you're talking about Russia and China and like, they're huge consumers of gold. Um, and, and that's part of their diversification strategy. In fact, China is the biggest consumer of gold in the world. It's also the biggest producer and does not produce enough onshore uh, to meet its diversification needs. It still imports significant amounts of gold. India obviously is a big consumer and has been for traditional reasons, um, religious and otherwise. Yes. Uh, but but um, central banks generally have been big consumers of gold. Investment demand has been very robust um, and we've had avenues to play that now that we didn't have 20 years like the gold ETF. Um, and that's opened up a universe of institutional investors in gold who previously could own gold. Um, pension funds couldn't own physical gold in the past. Mutual funds couldn't own physical gold. But the ETF, which is physically backed, is a marketable security on the NYSE. Um, and so a lot of these funds, institutional investors can now physically own gold through the ETF. So let's open up that universe of investment demand. That makes a lot of sense. So where do you see gold and copper prices going in the short to medium term? Yeah, look, I, I think gold um, could easily achieve $3,000 an ounce this year. And and um, the reason I point at that number is because uh, gold's previous cyclical peak was not $2,000 an ounce last year, which mm. we achieved. Um, it was actually $850 an ounce in 1981 when we last had hyperinflation. Right. And if you... Uh, Translate that into 2021 dollars as close to $3,000 an ounce. That's where I think we should be going. Because uh, I would argue that the amount of quantitative easing far exceeds what we saw back in the 70s um, when we had hyperinflation driven by the OPEC embargo and oil prices skyrocketing. Um, this is a, a coordinated effort uh, across the industrialized world by central banks to debase their currencies, to inf effectively inflate their way out of debt. Um, it's it's in their interest to do that. Um, yeah. It's a competitive valuation of currency. It's there to preserve their export markets and plate their way out of debt. But of course, uh, the one currency that you can't print is gold. And there's a very, very finite quantity of it. Um, in fact, there's a remarkable inelasticity of supply to price. There's been very little supply side response to the increased gold price we've seen over the last couple of years because of the long lead times to bring new mines on and the capital intensity. Yeah, there are very, very high barriers to entry in the gold business, whereas there are really no barriers to entry in fiat currency. And we've seen that in the cryptocurrency market. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 they've created this illusion that there's scarcity, and certainly in Bitcoin, mm -hmm. there's 21 million units. Yeah. But unfortunately, there's nothing to prevent uh, the introduction of competing cryptocurrencies. And what? in fact, there was a great uh, feature in the Global Mail report on business in the last weekend about central banks going into digital currencies. And so really they're gonna turn digital currencies into just another fiat currency. And they're yeah. gonna to try to capture the market share that Bitcoin has, has more or less monopolized up to this point. And what that does is really remove any scarcity value it has. Whereas gold is extremely finite in quantity and we produce ex extremely small quantities of it every year. In fact, that's declining now, given the dynamic we've seen in reserves over the last six or seven years. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You certainly can't print a gold bar. It's it's a little tricky. And in fact, speaking of that and hyperinflation, um, production of gold is very resource hungry. And 
Um, over the years, obviously, I grow, grew up in a country that's a really big gold producer, South Africa. And growing up, of course, we were surrounded by these great big yellow um, sand dunes that were called mine dumps with the sand blowing all over, very inefficient and you know, unsightly. But obviously, yes. as the price increased, the, the, the sand was reproduced and it all looks very different today. Yeah. So what is the future in mining from the sustainability, zero emissions and net water consumption perspective? Is it even possible? Uh, I think we're headed in the right direction. Um, and I would say on the carbon intensity side, we're, we're, we're making considerable progress. On the water intensity side, we have a long way to go. Um, but on the carbon intensity side, when I was running Gold Corp, we actually built the first all-electric underground mine, uh, the Borden Mine in, in Northern Ontario near the Timmins District. Um, and what that tells you is that equipment is being scaled and commercialized very, very quickly. So I'm very optimistic that we're going to have more and more uh, electrification of mines and significantly lower carbon intensity. Not that our business was, I, I think, terribly carbon intensive mm -hmm. before. Certainly in open pit mines, when you're using large equipment, there's a, a level of carbon intensity. But I don't see our business as terribly carbon intensive, to be uh, quite frank. And certainly le much less carbon intensive than Bitcoin mining, for example, which consumes globally almost 1% of power consumption. That's, uh, that's irresponsible. Uh, but, you know, let's leave that aside for a moment. Mm. Uh, what we need to do is continue to decarbonize our business. And I think we're making great strides in that regard. Um, I, I would say on the water consumption side, we still have a long way to go. Uh, I think there's a recognition that we are uh, significant water consumers. Uh, we don't uh, we don't recycle enough water. We consume too much fresh water in our processing and mostly in our tailings facilities, uh, traditional tailings facilities are significant water hogs. Um, and there is technology uh, that's being scaled rapidly and that's dry stack tailings. We've seen that in a number of mines, three of the mines that I've uh, helped to develop and operate over my career are, are dry stack tailings, which effectively uh, uh, recycles 100% of the water that goes into tailings. And not only that, creates an inner tailings facility, bales of tailings, tailings, if you will, that don't require traditional tailings impoundments. So you don't have the kind of risk of a tailings dam breach. Yes. And the reality is, you know, operating a tailings um, facility is kind of like operating an airline business. Uh, you rarely have accidents, but when you do, they're always catastrophic. They're catastrophic. And yeah. so you just want to remove the stigma that's associated with tailings facilities by just getting out of traditional tailings impoundments. We, we as an industry have to strive. We have to create that objective of stopping to build traditional tailings facilities. And the technology exists, it's being scaled quickly. Um, it's not quite to the scale that we need for large open pit mines, but it's getting there. Uh, there are, you know, F.O. Schmidt has developed a filter press uh, that can be used for large scale uh, tailings facilities, but not to the scale that we require at commercial levels for large open pits. But if we focus our efforts as an industry, and I don't think we're doing enough in that regard, uh, that will remove the stigma of tailings facility, but mm -hmm. more importantly, drive down water consumption, which I think is the single biggest impediment to new mine development on base and precious. Makes a lot of sense. So does the technology exist all around the world? Is it being improved or are some countries better than others? Because obviously some are open pits, some are very deep mines like in South Africa. 
Yeah, no, look, I, I, it's, it's, I've seen the technology utilized in multiple jurisdictions. It, it exists. Um, there's certainly more capital intensity associated with that up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the savings um, in terms of water consumption uh, down the road, the recycling of water, uh, the reduction of risk associated with um, those tailings facilities, and more importantly, a significant reduction in closure costs, um, yes. environmental remediation costs at the end of the mine life, should be a significant enough economic um, incentive uh, for us as an industry to really rapidly scale this technology. Absolutely. And makes a lot of sense to absorb the cost upfront and through the process rather than have the situation we have on a lot of the oil mines now where the wells are, the company's gone insolvent or something like that and you just can't can't repair the, the land fast enough. So what are your techniques or or secrets for growing business and unlocking the value within the businesses? I mean, you've had quite a variety of of experience to this point, actually operating companies as well as in the royalty side now where you're operating in a different way. Well, I mean, to me, it all starts with the geological model. Um, You want to define deposits uh, that have the potential, that have exploration potential that can grow beyond what's originally or initially delineated to make that economic case for construction. That's that optionality that investors are looking for. If you can unlock that optionality over time, that's when you create outsized returns for your shareholders. Because uh, generally you're going to make an investment case for a new mine based on what you're de- able to delineate it from limited access drilling. You know, where there's an underground right. mine, you can only do so much surface drilling, even open pit mines. It's as you start to operate and open up access for underground uh, production, for large open pits, you'll get better drill setups to test out that exploration potential and define that optionality for your shareholders. That's where you create significant value. And, you know, time and again, in all the projects that we've been involved with during my career, uh, we've unlocked that kind of exploration potential. You know, you you make as strong as cases you can, what you delineate originally, uh, but uh, unlocking that optionality really creates significant upside. And, you know, it's a cyclical business um, and there are normal ups and downs in the mm-hmm. cycle. So you want to define as long a, a reserve life as possible because it's very, very difficult to time your development to kind of hit the peak in the <laughs> Absolutely. cycle. It's not going to happen. Um, but nine, nine times out of 10, it actually is quite the opposite. You're yes. almost opening up and cutting the ribbon at the bottom of the cycle. Yeah. But, but as long as you've got 10, 15, 20 years, you're going to have uh, a number of opportunities where that cycle will turn in your favor and generates a return for your shareholders. And then if you continue to do that brownfield exploration and continue to extend the reserve life out and continue to leverage that significant capital investment and industrial complex you've built, that's where you create significant value for your shareholders. You know, so if you've been in a district for, you know, I think back to my days at HUD Bay where they've been operating up in the Flim Flon Snow Lake region for a hundred years, mm-hmm. a lot of that infrastructure has been around for all of that time. And they continually reutilize that infrastructure, uh, whether it's roads, mills, um, smelters and, and whatnot. If you can, continue to extend out mine life, you're just using utilizing that infrastructure, you don't have to re- replicate that capital investment. It just really, really uh, generates churns out big, big returns for your shareholders. Yeah, yeah, the returns further further down the road, because you've got all that sunk cost already, already in exactly. there, you don't need to, to keep reinvesting. So what are the major trends that you see coming in the, the various um, mineral industries that you're investing in? 
Yeah, look, I you know I position myself both with um, uh, Gold Royalty Corp, and also I'm I'm helping to run an investment fund called Marshall Precious Metals. Both of them are focused on earlier stage opportunities. On on Marshall, we're investing in junior exploration, which has seen significant underinvestment for years. Yeah. Um, and now we're starting to see the market selectively fund juniors. It's not quite broad based because we haven't seen the generals play the space significantly. Um, and Gold Royalty Corp provides capital to both explorers and developers uh, and gets royalties back. Um, these are the these are where we're seeing significant capital deficits. These are where the industry needs the juniors and early stage developers to be successful to replace a rapidly depleting reserve base. Um, and so we position ourselves in both Marshall and with Gold Royalty at that end of the spectrum, recognizing, as I said earlier on, there's going to be a wall of capital that's going to come from the established producers into that space because mm-hmm. they're not replacing what they're depleting currently. Uh, we're seeing peak gold. We're seeing uh, mine production come down steadily in the face of rising gold prices. It goes back to that point I made earlier on. We have inelasticity of supply to price in the industry because it's so difficult to get uh, a social license to operate, to uh, make the investment case, uh, to raise the capital in a very capital intensive business, to define the deposit geologically. It takes time. It's very, very uh, intensive. It yes. requires 10, 15, 20 years typically from discovery to first production. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So are there particular characteristics that you've found make certain executive teams more successful in these endeavors than others? Well, I, I'd say you have to be successful at the blocking and tackling. That is to say, exploration, development, um, de-risking the assets, commissioning. Um, if you have a strong technical team within the operators, then you're going to generally outperform over time. Um, within the royalty space, um, what I've tried to do to distinguish Gold Royalty Corp from our competitors is actually populate our board management team with former operators like what? myself. Um, most of the royalty companies out there are run by former analysts and investment bankers. And, and while I respect many of them, many of them haven't built anything other than a spreadsheet in their careers. And so what I've done with my board is brought in uh, capable operators with a collectively over 250 years of mine operating Fantastic. experience. And, and why that's important is because it gives us a, a clear eye view of the underlying risks of the opportunities we're investing in mm-hmm. and taking royalties back in. You know, so we're we're starting with a strong technical foundation of due diligence on every opportunity we take. And also, given that collective experience, um, what that gives us is a very deep Rolodex upon which to draw and, and I get access to opportunities before they're even available in the general market, because it is a competitive environment for gold royalty mm-hmm. companies. Um, you know, there is uh, co- quite often competitive and multiple bids on any opportunities to come to market. The key is to try to get into situations when they're still bilateral before their uh, their auction processes when it's, uh, you know, a cast of thousands coming in to bid on uh, a project or a royalty opportunity. And, and that tends to bid up the price and really undermine the return proposition that we're trying to create for our shareholders. Yeah, no, it can make it totally uneconomic once it gets to that stage. And with being operators, you probably also have the advantage of just having the innate gut feel of what can succeed, what will succeed, what just doesn't pass the smell test, because you've been there, done it before. That's right. And and the other thing is, I mean, I, I talk about the geological model, which is absolutely 
foundational and fundamental to anything we invest in. We want to ensure that um, we define the deposit well and understand it, but also uh, think there's upside, expiration upside to provide that leverage proposition to our shareholders. And so having that kind of strong technical foundation within our board management, I think, is absolutely critical to that. Yeah, absolutely. So are there uh, particular things that worry or excite you about the future as you move forward here? I'm sure you have large plans. (laughs) Yeah, look, I I think, um, again, being on the royalty side, um, you're you're getting the best of all worlds. You're getting leverage to the gold price. Uh, you're getting leverage to the expiration upside because our royalties are he- adhered to the properties. And if the deposits continue to grow, our shareholders will benefit from it. The biggest risk I see in the mine operating business right now is the prospect for significant inflation. Um, we're seeing general inflation in the economy at large. And I think that's going to be a factor driving up our cost structures in the mining business. And I'd say that uh, given that there's been a uh, development deficit, as I said earlier on, there's going to be an overcompensation and we're going to see rapid cost inflation on my view, double digit inflation and operating capital costs in the mining business again. And that's why the royalty model is so appealing to me right now is because we insulate our shareholders from that because we're only taking uh, you know, a percentage, a fixed percentage of the revenue. Um, we're not exposed to the underlying operating capital cost inflation risk. Yeah, makes sense. Is there a large skills shortage in mining as well there there is um and will continue to be so and become more acute as we start to see that significant investment catch-up investment if you will in in uh the the development side on the mining Mm. side we're going to see um a significant um uh constraint in terms of uh you know supply of people and machinery and equipment and so we've seen this movie before in the industry, and and I'd say by and large we really haven't learned anything. We've had a, a good half a dozen years in the gold business, in particular, for that matter, in base metal harvesting returns from existing assets and deleveraging. So the balance sheets are very very strong. We have net zero debt in the gold business right now. Base metals, I think, are uh, almost at that level as well. Um, so base metal companies are quite strong uh, on their balance sheet. So they're equipped to sustain some of that risk. But I do think that we're going to see leverage uh, levels pick up as costs start to inflate dramatically. No, it's it's a definite risk. I must admit, uh, you know, I mean, that's as you said, it's a it's a long development cycle, and a lot can change in that period. So, do you have any other thoughts uh, that you'd like to leave listeners with? Anything that we haven't covered today? Look, we're, we are, um, I think, poised for a significant bull run in both the base and precious side. There are strong fundamentals underpinning the demand uh, proposition for both. You know, in gold, it's um, monetary uh, and quantitative easing for the foreseeable future, low interest rates for the foreseeable future, um, the fiscally unsustainable debt levels that have to be inflated away. That's great for gold. On the copper side, decarbonizing the economy and, and the amount of demand and continued urbanization. Of, of significant global economies, developing economies is going to drive copper demand for the foreseeable future. The supply deficits are only going to become more acute in both of those businesses. I think we're going to see significant um, metal price appreciation in both um, gold and, and copper for the foreseeable future. Uh, so that that's an exciting proposition. Really, as an investor, you have to ask yourself, how do I best position myself to enjoy that upside? And I, I would say on the gold side, uh, your best place to be is on the royalty side. You can buy the ETF. You don't get the operating risk associated, but you don't get the leverage to the expiration upside. You only get that in the royalty and streaming 
uh, business model. That's where I see the benefit. And as the copper industry invests back into development, we'll, we'll benefit on the gold uh, and silver streaming side as well, because quite often copper deposits have precious metal byproducts. And we can provide a source of financing even for base metal companies and take streams back on their copper assets that have those byproducts. That's how I built the Constancia mine when I was running Hud Bay. You know, it was a $2 billion investment. $750 million of that investment came from a stream that we wrote on uh, Constancia. You know, 5% of the revenue is gold and silver. And Wheat and Precious Metals was there with a check uh, to help us finance that project. And it didn't undermine the economics of the copper project at all. And provided a meaningful opportunity for wheat and precious metals investors to enjoy the the upside in, in the gold and silver in that asset. No, it makes a lot of sense because these precious metals really do exist very often in the same areas or the same same veins of of. Uh, but they certainly are harvested and and um, economically produced in very very different ways. So pretty awesome. So how can listeners contact you or get hold of um, your business as a whole to learn more? Sure. We're at goldroyalty.com. It's an easy name to remember. It, we were always we were shocked when we named the company that that was an unprotected name. Yeah, it's <laughs> it interesting. Easy. It's almost like having the Kleenex brand of, of royalty companies. Yeah. People remember us. We're also GROY on the New York Stock Exchange or GROY. Um, if you'd like to follow our stock, we're trading around the $5 US per share mark, which is where we roughly we IPO'd. We did issue some warrants. Warrants trade on the NYC as well. Uh, they're, they've had a very good run. Um, so anybody that bought the units on the IPO is probably up about 10% right now since our IPO in March. Fantastic. Well. And that's a short period of time. So that's, that's pretty awesome. I will link all of that up in the show notes so that people can find the notes if they don't happen to have a piece of paper to write on old-fashioned style or type it into their notes on their on their phone so thank you very much david thanks for joining us today that really was an interesting conversation and very informative for all the listeners well i enjoyed it myself thank you have an awesome afternoon you too the unlocking business growth podcast is sponsored by protea consulting professional corporation We help our clients translate their operating and accounting data into the strategy for business growth they're truly capable of. Subscribe to the Unlocking Business Growth podcast on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify to hear from other companies that have overcome growth challenges. Get a free copy of NOLA's latest book, The 5F Strategy, Bottom Line Growth in Any Economy Without Additional Sales and Marketing and download the financial growth scorecard at proteaconsulting.ca. Work with us to achieve your business potential. To find out if we're a fit for your business, email info at proteaconsulting.ca and follow the Unlocking Business Growth podcast on LinkedIn and Facebook.